0: On March 9th, 1950, Timothy John Evans was executed by hanging following the murder of his wife, Beryl, and 13-month-old daughter, Geraldine.
1: Three years later, it would be revealed that their neighbor was a serial killer responsible for the deaths of Beryl, Geraldine, and six other women. The wrongful execution of Evans led to the suspension and eventual abolishment of capital punishment in the UK and was dramatized in the 1971 film, 10 Rillington Place.
0: This is Based on a True Crime. So, welcome to episode five of Based on a True Crime. My name is Chelsea, and I love true crime.
1: And I'm David, and I love horror movies. If you follow us on social media or you've read the title of this week's episode, you might already know a bit about the crime in the movie of this week. Um, if you don't follow us yet, please do at Based on a True Crime on Instagram, at True Crime Based on Twitter, and also on Facebook, Based on a True Crime. For the challenge this week, we posted a picture of the crowd which was gathered outside of 10 Rillington Place after the bodies were discovered. And we actually had two winners. So on Instagram, our buddy at William Brander correctly identified 10 Rillington Place, a.k.a. John Reginald Holiday Christie, a.k.a. Choky McChokerton, which, which is <laughs> we, awesome. Yeah, yes. it's like that's the,
0: the unofficial subtitle of this week's episode. <laughs> also the name of my future movie on John Christie.
1: So what about the Facebook one? Oh,
0: oh, I could take over the Facebook one. So on Facebook, the winner was actually my dad. Robert, and immediately after posting it, he got called out by my mom for cheating. So, in my description of the image, I gave a pretty straightforward hint saying that it would be pretty disturbing to have Dr. John Hammond from Jurassic Park play a serial killer. And my dad thought I was being tricky. So, he thought maybe John Hammond was a clue about Richard Attenborough, and he ended up jumping from that. So, jumping from the remake of Miracle on 34th Street to the original movie and thought maybe it was Edmund Gwenn had played a serial killer in some movie and he went on his IMDb and he couldn't find the movie and then finally googled Edmund Gwen's serial killer and uh, 10 Rillington Place came up with Richard Attenborough playing the serial killer. <laughs>
1: Dang, that's some detective work. (laughs) Your dad's awesome.
0: So this story, I actually, maybe because he's an English serial killer, I was not very familiar with it going in. I hadn't heard much about him. I actually first heard of this case in my book, something like The big book of bizarre crimes or something weird. So they had like a little, you know, page and a half bit about specifically the wrongful execution of Timothy Evans where they got into um, just a little bit of John Christie and didn't talk in nearly as much detail on his crimes as we will be getting into, I feel like.
1: So were you like, oh, this is a man wrongfully uh, sentenced to death and then it's like, oh, this is actually an awful serial murder case.
0: Yeah, yeah. I mean, it, you know, it definitely piqued my interest. I didn't really know what I was getting into. Doing the research for this episode uh, has definitely taken its toll. It's a really dark one. So if you're not into that, fast forward to where we talk about the movie. <laughs> because even the movie doesn't get as dark as things got in real life. And it was a dark movie. <laughs>
1: yeah, it was definitely a dark movie. But at least our friendly voices will be telling the story. So maybe that'll help add a little uh, light <laughs> to the darkness.
0: Yeah all right so let's get into it john reginald holiday christie was born april 8th 1899 in west yorkshire england uh, which was at the time known as the west riding of yorkshire his parents were ernest christie a carpet designer and mary hannah holiday the daughter of a local businessman John Christie was the sixth of seven children, and all of the children, including John, had their mother's maiden name as either a second or third name. For the most part, Christie had a quiet upbringing with no singular traumatic event which might have put him on the path for what he eventually became. A neighbor described Christie as, quote, an ordinary quiet boy. However, it was reported that his five elder sisters dominated him, undermining his confidence. His father was also said to often give him a good hiding. Christy said that he and his siblings lived in dread of their father, writing that he, quote, had a terrible temper and his children were afraid of him, and his wife often had to protect the children.
1: What is hiding? <laughs> is that like being whipped with a hide?
0: I actually have no clue. You know, that that's the quote. I thought maybe it was he scared them so much that they had to hide.
1: <laughs> My daddy often said, Boy, I'm gonna give you a good hiding
0: oh my goodness yeah yeah no that's a mystery
1: maybe it's a good game of hide and seek
0: oh yeah he sounds like a cool guy well he's about to get significantly less cool so um his father once beat christy for stealing tomatoes and uh, later when his mother convinced his father that he was innocent of this crime his father gave him a shilling so actually maybe he is a cool guy
1: maybe in got this a case a shilling's a, a shilling?
0: beating <laughs> oh gosh
1: <Yeah. laughs> i'm gonna give you a shilling son That could be good or bad, Dad.
0: (laughs) So uh, John Christie was actually his mother's favorite child, and he also seemed to hold her in high regard, describing her as, quote, a wonderful woman who lived for the happiness of others. If only he could have taken after his mother. (laughs) However, it was also reported that Christy was emasculated by his mother's overprotection, a feeling which was reinforced by his elder sister's domination over him.
1: There was one experience of note in his early childhood, and that was in 1907, which was when Christy was only eight, when his maternal grandfather passed away at their home after being ill for a while. When Christie saw his body laid out in the parlor, he felt a pleasure at seeing the man who once scared him reduced to just a body. And as an adult, he spoke about this experience, saying, quote, all my life, I never experienced fear or horror at the sight of a corpse On the contrary I have seen many And they hold an interest And fascination over me Christy also began to play In graveyards around this time And in particular Liked to look inside The cracks of the broken vault That housed children's coffins
0: And I personally Don't find anything Weird about that Maybe peeking in the cracks Because um, my uncle Worked at a graveyard And I remember You know one of my favorite Things to do when we visited Was go and look at You know especially The really old gravestones The ones had the cool Like skeletons carved in Those kind of early even like revolutionary war era, era <laughs> graves. But I would also say that probably my biggest fear would be peeking into a crack at a graveyard and seeing a body gravestones cool, walking around, fine, bodies, no thank you.
1: It's one thing if it's like a couple hundred year old you know, graveyard and it's like, ooh, is that a, a skeleton when it's like a rock or something, so <laughs> or dust, I don't know. <laughs> so when Christie was 11, he won a scholarship to Halifax Secondary School and he excelled at mathematics and algebra. It was later found out they had an IQ of 128, putting him in the smartest 5% of the UK population. He also sang in the choir and became a King's Scout, which is basically the equivalent of an Eagle Scout in Boy Scouts.
0: You could give everyone a lesson on that, right, Mr. Eagle Scout?
1: Yep, yep. I've uh, revealed my uh, secret Eagle Scout. (laughs) (laughs) Unfortunately, he was unpopular with his fellow pupils. He was considered a loner, and upon leaving school in 1913, he became an assistant movie projectionist. He was also a member of the All Souls Church and enjoyed his time there. He talked of learning the Ten Commandments and said, quote, the Sixth Commandment, thou shalt not kill, fascinated me. I always knew that someday I should defy it. Yikes. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know, that yeah. just fills me with dread
0: especially at thinking that sort of thing as a kid going to church as a kid which i don't have that experience yeah he had it like
1: written down and it was the idea highlighter all over that so he was fond of photography and reading particularly books on technical subjects like medicine and gardening
0: so a second notable experience occurred when christy was 15 he went to the lovers lane in halifax where local teens would gather and try to pick up girls but he did not have any luck leading to him being taunted by other boys he said that this experience made him feel like he quote was not like the other boys probably if he wanted to kill people when he was 15 not like
1: most boys is that
0: locker room talk is that what you talk about in the locker room uh no (laughs) um so eventually he was successful in picking up a girl in Seville Park and although they kissed and cuddled, he had trouble performing. So, of course, she went and told all of her friends, and Christy was given the nicknames Can't Do It Christy and Reggie Nodick, which wow. uh, I think I prefer those to his later nicknames of um, the Rillington Place Strangler and the Whispering Killer of London. I would like to remember him as Reggie Nodick. Personally, so this experience so traumatized him that he could not repeat these nicknames in public even 40 years later. And this experience is also often considered as um, kind of a defining moment for Christie, um, particularly shaping his hatred and dread of women, which meant that he could only perform sexually when he was in complete control. Christie himself said that, "quote All my life, I've had this fear of appearing ridiculous as a lover." And some historians have also pointed to an earlier experience of Christie's. When he was 10, apparently he saw one of his older sister's legs up to the knee. (laughs) Gasp. Scandalous. (laughs) Very scandalous. But I guess he felt aroused by this. And not only was this, you know, his sister, but this is also a woman that he really resented for being so domineering. The case has also been made that he hated women and in particular women who he was attracted to because he knew that he could not satisfy them due to his inability to perform in bed in any case it is likely that there's not just one moment which you know made him who he is it was a combination of factors a very bad combination of factors
1: so what we're saying is uh, he has multiple supervillain origins like layer upon layer of
0: what we're saying is cover your knees ladies Jeez. (laughs) I'm not saying
1: that (laughs) wait that's (laughs) that sounded leering. I'm sorry (laughs) In September of 1916, Christie enlisted in the army during World War I, where he served first as an infantryman and later as a signalman. In April of 1918, his regiment was dispatched to France, and that June, he was injured in a mustard gas attack and spent a month in a military hospital in Calais. He claimed that the attack left him blind and mute for three years, and was the reason later in life that he could not speak louder than a whisper.
0: Hence, the Whispering Killer of London, just is whispering. the creepiest creepiest serial killer nickname, I think.
1: It's, it's extremely creepy. agree. <laughs> However, there's no record of his blindness, and physicians determined that his symptoms were a hysterical reaction rather than a true physical malady. Christie's reaction fits into a pattern of exaggerating or feigning illness to avoid unpleasant situations, garner sympathy, and to get attention. Christie left the army and became a clerk... And on May 10th of 1920, he married Ethel Simpson Waddington from Sheffield at the Halifax Register Office, despite being mostly speechless at the time.
0: Which is like, I feel like a little bit unfair that a guy who not only is a burgeoning serial killer who can't perform sexually, but he also doesn't even talk and he can easily find someone to marry, which I guess I shouldn't complain because I found you, but it took me a while
1: <laughs> after he was speechless at the time the couple moved to Sheffield and remained there for the first part of their marriage however they struggled due to Christie's impotence with her while frequenting sex workers uh, it has been reported both that she teased him about his inability to perform and that friends and neighbors gossiped that she stayed with him out of fear which seemed contradictory
0: yeah personally I would not tease someone if I was afraid of them but to each their own I guess so early in their marriage Christie got a job as a postman uh, it was also 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 around this time that Christie committed and was convicted of a number of criminal offenses um, with kind of an increasing severity. So in April of 1921, he was caught stealing postal orders and he went to prison for three months. And then in January of 1923, he was convicted of obtaining money on false pretenses and violent conduct and was put on 12 months probation. In 1924, he committed two acts of larceny and received consecutive three and six-month imprisonments. Around this time, stories also began to circulate about Christie frequenting sex workers, and this ultimately led to his separation from Ethel. He moved to London while she remained with her relatives in Sheffield, and she got a job as a typist. And then in 1929, getting into that escalation, so uh, Christie had another run-in with the law, and this time it was for assaulting a sex worker with whom he was living in Battersea, a district in southwest london christie actually hit her in the head with a cricket bat and the magistrate described this as a quote murderous attack and for that he was sentenced to six months of hard labor and this wasn't even his last offense his last offense was actually In uh, 1933, and this was for stealing a car from a priest who had befriended him. And this uh, has a little bit getting into my Broadway dorkiness. It just reminded me a little bit of Les Mis, (laughs) um, that early scene where Jean Valjean is taken in by the priest and then goes and steals his silver and the priest forgives him. And Jean Valjean takes that moment to turn his entire life around, um, which John Christie did not do. Spoiler alert. (laughs) He did not. No. So he was imprisoned for three months for this offense. And during this time, he actually ended up getting back in touch with Ethel and the couple reconciled. Um, So she moved to London to be with him. Although Christy did continue to seek out sex workers to relieve his increasingly violent sexual urges. Those are three words in succession that you just don't really want to hear or think about. No, 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 definitely not. Uh, So in 1937, the Christie's moved into the uh, top floor of 10 Rillington Place before finally settling into the infamous ground floor flat in December of 1938. The flat was squalid, and at the time, the Notting Hill area where it was located was run down. So it's not the Notting Hill area that you see in that Julia Roberts film.
1: Sometime after moving to London, Christie was hit by a car and had to be hospitalized, which was an accident that fueled his hypochondria. Christie used a number of ailments as an excuse to stay home a lot and visited doctors a total of 173 times over 15 years. It was around this time that the beginnings of World War II were creating turmoil in London. Christie volunteered to join the War Reserve Police and became a special constable for Harrow Road Police Station, a position which he held for four years. It is unlikely that anyone checked his past record, which should have barred him from this service. His fanatical attitude towards upholding the law earned him the nickname, the Himmler of Rillington Place. That is just a nickname you don't want either.
0: Yeah, another one on the list. There's so many. Chokey McChokerton.
1: He is a supervillain. Yep. All these nicknames. So Christie enjoyed his new position, and particularly the authority which came with the uniform. He used his authority to follow women and kept notes about them for years. He also bored a peephole into his kitchen door to watch his neighbors. His wife was frequently away visiting relatives during this time period, and Christie somehow found women who were receptive to his advances. In mid-1943, he began a relationship with a woman who worked at the police station while her husband was in the war overseas. He would visit this woman at her house while Ethel was away, until one day when her husband unexpectedly returned. The husband severely beat Christie and threw him out of the house, And he filed for divorce from his wife due to their infidelity, naming Christy as co-respondent.
0: So Christy appeared to have learned a lesson from this experience, although um, maybe not the right lesson. So the lesson he learned was to bring women to his home instead. So during the summer of 1943, he encountered 21-year-old Austrian girl named Ruth First while in a snack bar. Uh, she had just taken a job in a munitions factory and lived in a single room close to Rillington Place. She also may have earned money occasionally as a sex worker. So after their meeting, she began to visit Christie at Rillington Place when his wife was away. And according to Christy, on August 24th Forth, he received a telegram uh, while Ruth was over announcing that Ethel was on her way home with her brother. According to Christie, Ruth undressed and asked him to have sex with her and said that she wanted them to run off together, but he refused. So instead, he strangled her to death while they were having sex. He wrapped her body in her leopard coat and hid the body and her belongings under the floorboards in the front room before Ethel and her brother arrived.
1: Yeah, that's just yeah, that's really scary.
0: not even close to the worst thing that he's done. So the following evening, Christy moved her body to the back garden where it remained until his arrest 10 years later. Although Ruth's disappearance was reported to the police on September 1st, her whereabouts remained a mystery. Christy wrote of this experience, quote, I remember as I gazed down at the still form of my first victim, experiencing a strange, peaceful thrill. And he also wrote, quote, my first murder was thrilling because I had embarked on the career i had chosen for myself the career of murder
1: shortly after committing his first murder christie resigned from his position with the war reserve police and began working for ultra radio works in acton it was at christie's new position that he met his second victim muriel amelia Edie, who worked in the assembly department there she lived with an aunt and had a steady boyfriend christie would often invite muriel and one of her friends over for tea and the four of them even went to movies together at some point, Christie decided that he wanted to do to her what he had done to Ruth, later writing, quote, I planned it all out very carefully. And by what he did to Ruth, that means murder. Moiter. Moiter. On October 7th, 1944, Christie invited Muriel to his flat while Ethel was out of town with the promise of a, quote, special mixture, which he could cure Muriel's bronchitis.
0: Never trust anyone who wants to cure anything with a special mixture.
1: No, 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 no. No, 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 no. The mixture was a jar of Friar's balsam, with two tubes inserted into it. One tube removed gas from the jar for Muriel to inhale. The other connected to the domestic gas, which at the time was coal gas consisting of 15% carbon monoxide. The carbon monoxide gas bubbled through the Friar's balsam, masking the smell. Within a minute of breathing in this mixture, Muriel was weakened enough for Christy to easily overpower her. He strangled her with a stocking while having sex with her. There is some question as to whether Christie is a necrophiliac or not, due to the likelihood that his victims died while he was having sex with them. But, by his own account, were alive when he began. In any case, lines were definitely blurred. He placed Muriel's body in the communal washhouse while digging a hole for her body in the back garden, close to where Ruth was buried. Later, while digging around in the garden, he uncovered a femur bone, which he used to prop up the trellis in plain view.
0: So at this point, we're going to take a little break from John Christie's story and give um, more of a backstory about another one of John Christie's victims, the one that didn't actually die by his hand. So this is the story of Timothy John Evans. Uh, Timothy Evans was born on November 20th, 1924 in South Wales. His father left their family shortly before Evans was born and Evans had difficulty learning from a young age and he also missed a lot of school as a child when he developed tubercular verruca on his right foot, which needed extensive treatment. Although Evans was reported by some to be illiterate, he um, at the very least was able to read comic books which he consumed avidly he also developed a bad habit in his youth of inventing these kind of self-aggrandizing stories such as telling people that his father was an italian count Um, evans actually had um, a very low iq an iq of 70 and at the age of 24 he was said to have the intellect of an 11 year old So in 1935, Evans moved with his mother and her second husband to London, where he worked as a painter and a decorator while attending school. In 1937, uh, he returned to South Wales briefly, and he worked in the coal mines there until eventually he had to resign because of continuing problems with his foot. So he returned to London in 1939 to live with his mother, and in 1946, they moved to St. Mark's Road in Notting Hill, um, just about two minutes from 10 Rillington Place.
1: Evans met Beryl Susanna Thorley on a blind date set up by a friend. Within a few weeks, they were engaged and quickly married on September twentieth, nineteen 1947. Initially, the, the couple lived with Evans' mother, but when Beryl discovered she was pregnant in early 1948, they decided to move into their own place that Easter Monday. They moved into the top floor flat at 10 Rillington Place, and Evans' sister Eileen was reportedly weirded out by Christy. One day when visiting, Christy appeared in the Evans' flat with tea for her. Although she declined, he did not leave until she said that her brother would be back soon. On October 10th, 1948, the couple's daughter Geraldine was born. Her birth put a strain on the marriage, as Evans's salary could no longer cover their bills. Timothy and Beryl fought often, fights which were loud enough to be heard by their neighbors and which led to physical violence that was witnessed on several occasions. These fights were centered on Beryl's inability to keep house and manage family finances and were exasperated by Evans' heavy drinking and short temper. They also fought about a friend of Beryl's, Lucy Indicott, who lived with them briefly and whom Evans developed an interest in. When Lucy was forced out, Evans threatened to throw Beryl out of a window and even left to live with Lucy. However, she threw him out due to his violence, and he returned to Beryl. In late 1949, Beryl became pregnant again. Beryl decided that she wanted to get an abortion due to their financial struggles and rocky relationship. While reluctant at first, Evans eventually agreed.
0: So at the time abortion was not legal in the UK and I don't think you know legal anywhere and we all know that making abortion illegal does not stop abortions from occurring it just makes them much less safe for the women who need them. You know this is the point where actually the stories of Timothy Evans and John Christie begin to combine. So on November 30th of 1949, Timothy Evans went to police in South Wales, telling them that his wife died after consuming a bottle of something which a man had given her to abort the fetus. And he said that he had disposed of the body in the sewer drain outside 10 Rillington Place. So this story fell apart when police quickly went and checked the drain. They found no body, and they also found that it actually took three men to lift the drain cover. So when confronted with these facts, Evans changed his story. So he told them about their downstairs neighbor, John Christie, offering to perform an abortion on Beryl. He said that the couple agreed to take Christie up on the offer, and on November 8th, Evans returned from work and was informed by Christie that Beryl had died during the procedure. So because abortion was legal, Christie offered to conceal the body, and uh, he had told Evans that he was going to be disposing of it in that drain. Christie also said that he would be making arrangements for Geraldine to stay with a couple in East Acton while Evans um, temporarily left London to not arouse suspicion around the disappearance of his wife. So Evans left London for Wales on November 14th, and he also returned to 10 Rillington Place several times after that, asking after Geraldine but every time John Christie refused to let him see her.
1: Super suspicious right there.
0: So after hearing this version of events, police searched 10 Rillington Place. And the first time they found nothing incriminating. They also did not spot the actual human femur, (laughs) which was being used to prop up a trellis in the garden. So during their second search though, they found the bodies not only of Beryl, but also of Geraldine wrapped up. Yeah, I know, sad face. (laughs) David just made a sad face, yeah. Um, wrapped up in a tablecloth in the wash house um, in the back garden, Beryl had not died from a botched abortion, but rather both of them had been strangled. Although police did search the garden at this time, supposedly they um, once again missed the femur and also did not find the shallow graves of Christie's two previous victims. Even though shortly after the police search, a dog actually uncovered the skull of Muriel Edie, and Christie ended up taking the skull and placing it in a bombed-out house nearby. And it was found by some children who did end up bringing it to the police, but they did not make the connection to John Christie in time
1: ah geez this is just like so close to getting busted but yet again thwarted police confronted evans informing him that not only was the body of his wife discovered at tin rellington place but also that of his 13 month old child and both had been strangled they asked him whether he was responsible for their deaths to which he responded quote yes yes evans confessed to strangling Beryl while arguing over debts and strangling geraldine two days later Later, journalist Ludovic Kennedy showed that this confession was fabricated and dictated by police officers, while Evans, having just learned of his daughter's murder, was in a highly emotional state.
0: It's nice to know that uh, some police tactics don't change. Yep. Is that bad? Did I cross a line? (laughs) (laughs) Um.
1: Evans also stated in court that police threatened him with violence and coerced him to confess, which, you know, as we mentioned earlier about his, you know, level of intelligence, that's Kind of not surprising that he was coerced to confess. Evans was put on trial for the murder of Geraldine on January 11th of 1950 due to the legal practice of charging one murder at a time, even though evidence was presented that he killed both of them. Prior to going on trial, Evans withdrew his confession and alleged that Christie was responsible for the murders. John Christie and his wife, Ethel, were key witnesses for the prosecution, giving detailed evidence about the fights between Evans and his wife. Christie also categorically denied the allegations against him. In addition, a number of workmen who were working in the wash house several days after Evans had supposedly hidden the bodies were there willing to testify that the bodies were not in the wash house at the time. Not only were these workmen not called to testify, but they were actually re-interviewed by police and forced to change their stories to fit the prosecution's timeline. The defense brought up Christie's extensive criminal record, but the fact that he appeared to be reformed, even acting in service to the police, may have worked in his favor. Although Evans had no criminal record, his conflicting statements about his wife's death greatly undermined his credibility. In the end, the case came down to Evans' word versus Christie's, and after deliberating for 40 minutes, the jury found Evans guilty. Less than two months later, on March 9, 1950, Evans was hanged at Pentonville Prison.
0: So the disclosure of Christie's previous crimes during Evans' trial resulted in Christie being fired from his job at the Post Office Savings Bank. He sunk into a deep depression, losing 28 pounds. Don't feel bad for him. And he did eventually find employment again, this time as a clerk with the British Road Services in August of 1950. During this time, the first and second floor flats at 10 Rillington Place found new tenants with the influx of immigration from the West Indies, and the Christie's disliked these new tenants and regarded them as inferior, which is really rich coming from a guy who strangles babies. Ooh. (laughs) Yeah. uh, Oh, so you're a serial killer and you're racist. Jeez. What a combination. (laughs) So on December 6th of 1952, John Christie suddenly resigned from his job, claiming that he had found a better job in Sheffield and that he and his wife would be moving. and after his wife Ethel disappeared, John Christie told others that she had already moved and that he would be following her shortly. but the truth was that on the morning of December 14th, 1952, which is my birthday not uh, 19- <laughs> not 1952
1: <laughs> wow um, you look brightly for. Yeah. Oh.
0: <laughs> <laughs> it's weird going laughing into uh, John Christie strangled Ethel in their bed and buried her under the floorboards
1: see we give you something dark and then we give you something light and then we give you something dark. Yeah.
0: So this one is kind of what stands out to me the most about this timeline is, you know, he at least had this plan from December 6th telling people that they were moving. So, you know, that's at least a full week of waking up next to a person that you're planning on killing and then eventually kill.
1: Pre-murder. I mean, meditated.
0: Yeah. What I'm saying is don't kill me, David. No. No. (laughs) So... Two days later, so December 16th, he sold his wife's wedding ring. And on February 2nd, he forged his wife's signature and emptied her bank account. And he also sold most of their furniture. Because remember, he did not have an income at this point.
1: Suspicious.
0: So about the murder of his wife, Christy wrote, quote... When I murdered my wife, I removed the one obstacle, which for 10 years had apparently held me in check. After she was gone, the way was clear for me to fulfill my destiny. So again, with that supervillain thing, it's a very supervillain line. So to John Christie, it seems fulfilling his destiny meant killing more women. And he did just that murdering three women in quick succession between January 19th and March 6th of 1953. These women were Kathleen Maloney, Rita Nelson, and Hectorina McLennan.
1: Kathleen Maloney was a sex worker who worked in the area. Rita Nelson was visiting her sister in the area when she crossed paths with Christy. Christie had befriended Hectorina McLennan and her boyfriend Alex Baker after meeting them at a cafe. He even invited them to stay at his flat while they looked for accommodations in the city. After convincing McLennan to come to his flat alone one day, he murdered her. He met with Baker regularly after killing her to see if he had any news and even helped search for her. He claimed to have gassed each of these three women by simply flooding the kitchen with coal gas rather than using his previous more elaborate setup.
0: This uh, struck me as kind of unlikely because I feel like with a house so drafty... I can't imagine that he would be unaffected by the coal gas, you know, especially since he probably has to stay in the area. They're not just going to sit in his kitchen and be slowly gassed. So really, who knows? This is all his accounts.
1: And it's like, was he trying to gain sympathy somehow like i wasn't in such a close quarters as the other murders these murders were uh you know from a little bit of a distance <laughs> i don't know yeah it's just well, he he awful. told
0: all sorts of stories about how and why he killed in particular these three women after he was caught because you know he was unsure after he was caught if they had found the the two in the garden which they did so we can get into that later <laughs> if you'd like
1: All right, so, well, after they were drowsy from the gas, he strangled them with a rope while raping them. He wrapped their bodies in blankets and stored them in an alcove behind the kitchen wall, the entrance to which he papered over before moving out of 10 Rillington Place on March 20th of 1953. After Christie left the flat, the landlord allowed the tenant on the top floor flat, Brairsford Brown, to use the ground floor flat kitchen. On March 24th, Brown discovered the alcove and in it the bodies of Maloney, Nelson, and McLennan. Brown informed the police, beginning a citywide search for Christie on March 25th of that year.
0: So, after leaving Rillington Place on the 20th, Christie booked a room at Kings Cross Roton Houses. Although he booked the room for seven nights, he only stayed four, leaving on March 24th, the day the bodies were found. On March 28th, after news of the manhunt reached Christie, he called News of the World and offered an exclusive interview, but was frightened off when police arrived at the location where he was waiting to meet a reporter. During these days, Christie wandered the city and slept on park benches at night. Finally, on March 31st, he was confronted by a police officer near the embankment at Putney Bridge. When asked his name, Christie identified himself as John Waddington using the maiden name of the wife he had killed. The police officer asked him to remove his hat and recognize Christie, arresting him on the spot. When he was taken into custody, Christy had with him an old newspaper clipping about Timothy Evans.
1: Hearing you read it, I'm like, yes, he's got. Yeah. It doesn't you know, it doesn't bring bring anyone back to life, but you know, <laughs>
0: And it's unfortunate that they didn't catch him
1: three Sooner. years ago yeah, before exactly. he killed four
0: more people when only they had spotted that femur that was right there. Oh well.
1: <laughs> oh, <laughs> Yeah, Timothy Evans, his ninth victim.
0: Yeah, really.
1: While in prison, Christie confessed to killing all the women found at 10 Rillington Place, including Beryl Evans, although he never admitted to killing Geraldine. His trial began on June 22nd, 1953, and took place in the same court where Evans had been tried. As was the case with Evans, he was only tried for one murder, that of his wife, Ethel. Christie pled insanity, a plea which the jury rejected. Dr. Matheson evaluated Christie and testified that he had a hysterical personality. Which is
0: weird. I don't find him funny at all. That's <laughs> a bad find joke.
1: You, I find you hysterical. Oh,
0: it's The bad joke? That's a dad joke. That's a bad dad joke.
1: That's just called a joke. <laughs> but he was not apparently insane. Wasn't found insane. John Christie was found guilty, however, and sentenced to death. Christie was hanged on July 15th, 1953, at Pentonville Prison on the same gallows as Timothy Evans. The confession of Christie to Beryl's murder sparked controversy surrounding Evans's conviction and execution for the murder of Geraldine. Evans had been convicted primarily on the testimony of Christie, and it was now revealed that not only was Christie a serial killer, but he had confessed to one of the murders Evans was thought to have committed. The Home Secretary, David Maxwell Fife, commissioned an inquiry into the case, led by John Scott Henderson. After just one week, Henderson concluded that Evans had killed his wife and daughter based on essentially nothing other than his own opinion that Christie's confession was unreliable.
0: Unsurprisingly, the public was not satisfied with this inquiry, and the question of Evans's innocence continued to loom. A second inquiry was conducted by Sir Daniel Braben over the winter of 1965 to 1966. And this inquiry took a much closer look at the evidence and arguments presented in this case. The inquiry found that it was, quote, more probable than not that Evans had killed his wife, but that Christie was responsible for Geraldine's death. Although in any case, uncertainty meant that a jury could not have been sure Evans was guilty of either crime beyond a reasonable doubt because Evans had been convicted of the murder of his daughter and not his wife this finding meant that the home secretary was able to recommend a posthumous pardon for Evans which was granted on October 18th of 1966 Evans's remains were returned to his family who reburied him in a private grave Following this controversy, capital punishment for murder was suspended in the UK in 1965, and it was finally completely abolished in 1998.
1: Which it just goes to show you that things, you know, those wheels are slow to move, regardless of how the abundance of evidence and the reality behind it all, and the public outcry, it just takes a long time.
0: Yeah, and kind of getting into the discussion points that I have uh, listed. So one of them is did Evans kill his wife? So the last inquiry into this said it seemed more probable than not that he killed his wife. So do you have any opinions on this before I get into my opinion? Don't steal my opinion because it's written there.
1: Wait, so you're saying that it was it looked like he did kill her? So
0: the the inquiry, the nineteen sixty five to sixty six inquiry, the second one, the final outcome was that they thought it was more probable than not. That Evans had killed his wife, but had not killed his daughter. They said Christie had killed his daughter. Um, so I guess I wanted to get your opinion on that finding.
1: opinion as Christie did it all, I, I just I just can't imagine a world with Christie out there as close as he was to th- these victims. What are the odds that Timothy Evans killed his wife? killed his daughter
0: and that's exactly the point that was frequently brought up when the case was discussed was you know what are the chances of two people operating in that area that you know strangled people to death because the wife and the daughter were both strangled which is, you know, kind of Christie's thing. He is Chokey McChokerton.
1: Uh, he is. I, <laughs> yeah. I just find it ridiculous. Yeah. I yeah. mean, I, I think after, you know, learning about the whole story, I just don't see it. Yeah. I feel like it was crispy. I mean, what would a good supervillain... Oh, sorry. I, I, <laughs> I, I, I was going to stop with that line of the whole supervillain thing. But um, no, I, I. I just can't see it being Evans. I just can't. What about you?
0: I strongly feel that... The state ended with that decision because they wanted to make their own miscarriage of justice seem less severe. Oh, yeah. So no, they that's a great need point. to feel like, you know, they can pardon him. So they're saying he did not kill his daughter, which is what he was convicted of. So they can grant him the pardon. But by saying they think he probably killed his wife, you know, they're just really covering their own asses because they hung someone. They don't want this person to be innocent.
1: Right. But no.
0: I think he was 100% innocent. I mean, obviously not a good person. He did threaten to throw his wife out a window, but I don't believe that he strangled her or his daughter.
1: It's like if they're all trying to point fingers and place blame, why not place blame at the person that's no longer living?
0: I'm so so the um, other thing I want to talk about, I don't know how deep we want to get into it because it's quite the question, but the question of capital punishment in general. So, you know, it was abolished in the UK in 1998. It is certainly not abolished where we live in the US. And we have talked about this prior to when the podcast was just a, a we uh, not even idea in either of our heads. So why don't you uh, say your opinion?
1: <laughs> my opinion is um completely anti-capital punishment I realize that having not gone through having a family member or someone close to me murdered and needing to see justice done you know from my ideological perspective I think the even small percentage that an innocent person is put to death for a crime that they obviously didn't commit if they were innocent that's that's too many and I think that it just yeah it should be abolished in the United states as well we have a lot of countries around the world that do not have a death penalty I can firmly say that I am anti-capital punishment so how do you feel about capital punishment Chelsea
0: so I'm I'm also very conflicted on the topic it's you know it's hard I feel like being a true crime junkie so to speak, You, you know, read about these horrible things that people do that they're 100% guilty of. And like, I'm not going to shed a tear over, you know, John Christie getting hanged after what he did. But I do feel like there is too much of a question currently. People have been pardoned from death row due to new DNA evidence frequently people that would have been put to death without DNA evidence and without the sort of long appeals processes that we have now in both of the cases in for John Christie and for Timothy Evans they were hanged within two months after they were found guilty and you know there is this long appeals process and we try to be sure but um, whenever I think about capital punishment I think about uh, one specific case which is Cameron Todd Willingham so he is a father who was executed In 2004, for um, murdering his three children due to what they said was deliberate arson. And even before he was executed, you know, scientists were saying that they didn't think it was arson. The arson investigation was not done well or accurately. It was not well understood. He maintained his innocence up until his death. And I would highly encourage anyone who wants to know more to read the it's a 2009 New Yorker article called "Trial by Fire." And it's 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 heartbreaking. I really do feel like. This man was innocent, or at least certainly not guilty beyond a reasonable doubt. And he was killed by our country because our justice system isn't perfect. And I think that until it's perfect, I can't really, in good faith, support capital punishment. And Wait. it's never going to be perfect.
1: <laughs> well, not only not perfect, but, you know, I was just thinking about, as you were talking about that case, you know, the, the mentally ill who have been executed.
0: But executed for they've been in prison or executed extrajudiciously by... Uh, people with itchy trigger fingers right
1: yeah Uh, uh, there's both of that actually yeah so
0: anyway it's depressing so um speaking (laughs) of depressing let's go into my last point which i just wanted to mention because it is terrible after john christie was arrested they found in the flat a pubic hair collection (laughs) so um what (laughs) <laughs> yes, so clumps of female pubic hair from four victims. One of them was a match for Ethel, and the other three were not matches for the three women that were hidden in that alcove in the kitchen. So it is possible that they belonged to, or at least two of them belonged to the skeletal remains, which it would be impossible to tell because they were skeletal. But even then, that leaves one clump unaccounted for. So it is possible that Christy had more victims. He was a huge dick, or as I like to call him, Reggie (laughs) No-Dick. And... He specifically did target, you know, sex workers, which I think that he considered this population to be a population that he could kind of get away with killing the idea that there are not people who will be looking for them. So it's possible that he is more there are more bodies that can be attributed to John Christie, major asshole
1: his another nickname another nickname unofficial well we're officially uh chris yeah. chris christie a
0: major asshole yes
1: the odds of like every serial killer having or discovering 100 percent of the victims of every serial killer you know what what is that what are those odds it's always like you know convicted of so many murders and then estimated to possibly have killed this many more so yeah
0: yeah christy has next to his name eight plus so okay. um, that's counting both Beryl and Geraldine, which uh, I guess history has decided that he killed, even if the UK justice system has decided that uh, Evans killed Beryl. Anyway, I'm sick of talking about this. Could we talk about the movie? <laughs> yeah, depressing. so that's the
1: uh, real life story of serial murderer John Christie. And then we're going to transition over to the film 10 Rillington Place here in just a moment. So sit tight. What happened? What happened to the women? What happened to the women at 10 Rillington Place? Ina, Geraldine, Beryl,
0: Muriel, Rita, Ethel. One by one, the women entered.
1: One by one, they never came
0: out of 10 Rillington Place. It's all so terrifying because it's all so true. What happened? What happened to the women at 10 Rillington
1: Place? So after dealing with the real-life details of the crime, there was a film that came out in 1971, directed by Richard Fleischer, also called 10 Rillington Place, and Throughout the 60s, filmmakers had tried to create a film version of the story, but because the Christie case was so disturbing, they felt like British audiences weren't ready for it, which, I mean, it's it's intense now, right? Yeah. We experienced that, you with the research, and even just talking about it so far. It's quite grueling.
0: Yeah, and I think the film does a good job portraying Christie and his crimes in a way that's disturbing while not going into the more graphic details. There were no clumps of pubic hair and no very graphic depictions of rape, mostly just close-ups of Richard Attenborough's heavy-breathing bald-capped face, which...
1: yeah. yeah. No, you're right. It, it it feels like a film. It doesn't feel like a documentary or, or some sort of, I don't know, salacious, down and, and dirty sort of film. The crimes themselves are, are awful, but, it, you know, it plays out as a film narrative in a well-structured way so the film takes place between october 7th of 1944 through march 31st of 1953
0: but it did specifically focus in on the Evanses, right so the the murder of beryl and geraldine so that that 1944 to 1953 range so it began with the killing of muriel which happened in um, 1944 but then then, you know, the Evanses didn't move in until, was it, I think, 1949. And then that 1953 is actually the film ends with his arrest. Um,
1: yeah, so we spend a lot of time with the Evanses. A lot of time, yeah, in, with the Evanses. In terms of the the film. So probably one of the most fascinating things that I came across while researching the film version was that they consulted with a real-life executioner who was retired his name was albert peripont and he became the technical advisor for the execution scene now this is a big deal because at the time it was the first opportunity that british citizens actually i guess most everyone who wasn't involved with the execution or the justice system in the uk had seen an execution occur that way so it was um still covered under the government's Official Secrets Act, and there were no details that had been written down regarding how this occurred. So Pont came in using an assumed name. He was anonymous, and he was able to recreate the scene from his real-life experience. Yeah. Uh,
0: Which is interesting kind of how differently they treat or they treated executions in the UK at the time compared to the US because I feel like when people are executed in the US, there's much more of a spectacle to it, right? Families can go, press can be present, you know, there's a big deal with recording the last words, um, so it definitely does not have that, that secrecy that seemed to be present in the UK.
1: Yeah, and when, when I think of Death by Hanging, I imagine something differently than how the it gallows. plays out in the film. Yeah, yeah. absolutely. Yeah. And, and Instead... As you'll see in the film, they they walk him into a room and there's a noose hanging and it's very ominous. But I was like, are they gonna walk him up and have him step on a chair or a ladder? But
0: I thought maybe they're gonna hoist him up with the other end of the rope. I was like yeah. kind of shocked when it happened.
1: And it was so sudden. Yeah. And the fact that, you know, he's just It was
0: the the floor. They like right. the, they drop out. A door yeah. opens up in the floor and just
1: Yep. Ugh. Yeah, so that was a very dramatic and impactful scene. We get to see Timothy Evans hang. We do not get to see Christy hang. That's uh, left to the imagination. So you can imagine that's as awful as you really can.
0: Hope it's slow. No, I shouldn't say that.
1: (laughs) All right, so speaking of Christy, Richard Attenborough played... John Christie, no, and that oh, <laughs> not
0: Richard, not Santa Claus. Yeah, so, not John Hammond.
1: Yeah, so the you saddest. may not know the name, but it is. Uh, John oh, I Hammond hope you know the from, name. Yeah, from Jurassic Park, uh, everyone's grandfather, the kindly Walt Disney of Jurassic Park.
0: Chris Kringle from The Miracle on 34th Street. You know, re, re reboot. That's not a word Reim- you use for re, that.
1: Re- reimagining. No, I think it's a remake <laughs> at that point. Yeah. So yeah, no, it it's very interesting because I think neither of us had seen any of his performances from the early 70s you could tell it was him but he's under prosthetics that apparently took three hours to get ready it's it's primarily a bald cap uh he does not have the height of the real life john christie which based on all of the nicknames that he has you would imagine the real life version to be a tiny man sorry <laughs> tiny men out there but no he was actually fairly tall and and slender in real life whereas richard attenborough he's not a a, a statuesque actor so i've got a really great quote from his perspective on getting the role of john christie which was from an interview of the times of london that was published before the film came out on may 18th of 1970 and he says quote i do not like playing the part but i accepted it at once without seeing the script i've never felt so totally involved in any part as this it is a most devastating statement on capital punishment
0: Yes. Yes, it is.
1: Uh, Yeah. So in terms of the other very notable actor that is in the film version, we have Chelsea.
0: John Hurt. And David is letting me talk about him because he's adorable in this role. He's very young. This was 1971. Tall with was it foppish good looks you know he's got the kind of longer hair which I'm a fan of now especially because David's growing his hair out um he's just you know really handsome he actually looks a lot like Timothy Evans which there are um, pictures of him if you want to google them or check out our Instagram feed I'll, I'll post a few but um yeah and he just he does a great job in the role I will say Although they show him getting violent with his wife, it kind of seems to me from doing the research that they make him a very sympathetic character, whereas in real life, you might have a little less sympathy for some of his actions. But um, I think he does a good job playing him as this kind of childlike figure because he did have the intellectual capacity of an 11 year old think in particular, the kind of confusion when he discovers that, or when the police discover that his wife's body is not in the sewers. And when he eventually finds out that, you know, not only is his wife dead, but also his daughter, John Hurt just does a great job.
1: He does. And I think I like had a, a very physical reaction to this film as you- I know you witnessed. <laughs> yeah. Uh, you know, going through the range of emotions, especially with Timothy Evans, John Hurt's uh, character. Because, you know, at first, the sort of like strained relationship he has with his wife and some of the initial reactions he has to explaining uh, or when she. You know describes that she's pregnant again and what she wants to to terminate the the child you know seeing his reaction i didn't have much sympathy for him at first and then as the film progresses for me uh, really turned around by the time um you know his fate is is sealed which i think is a testament to director richard fleischer's talent with directing actors so fleischer made a handful of films that were based on true crimes
0: so tune in to feature episodes
1: yeah definitely so just giving you a list of a couple of them starting in 1955 the girl in the red velvet swing is the true story of evelyn nesbitt shaw she was a showgirl caught in a love triangle with architect stanford white and eccentric young millionaire harry k thaw followed in that in 1959 was compulsion which chelsea i don't know if you looked into this but this i did is, not <laughs> two wealthy law school students go on trial for murder in their version of the leopold Loeb case
0: oh my gosh double feature with that and murder by numbers yeah, yeah?
1: yep uh orson well stars in that
0: we so. should actually do that
1: yeah so that would be a, a great classic film to cover just prior to Uh, the film we're talking about today he covered the Boston Strangler which was the murder of the 13 women in Boston in the early 60s I feel like
0: I should just recommend at this point the Stranglers podcast which is excellent who knows we might do this movie in the future but even if we do we're not going to go into nearly as much detail this is an entire podcast specifically dedicated to uh, the Boston Strangler and it's awesome
1: Albert Savo well, <laughs> well, was it just out because Right, Salve? exactly. Then he followed up with our film today, 10 Rillington Place. What really caught my eye about Richard Fleischer's filmography are some of the genre films that he has directed. And um, that started, for me, uh, with 20,000 Leagues Under the Sea, which is one of my favorite classic movies. Uh, he directed that in 1954. Also did Fantastic Voyage in 66, Doctor Doolittle in '67, which you know a lot of you may know the Eddie Murphy version. That's
0: the one I saw.
1: Soon to be uh, rebooked with Robert Downey Jr. in the role of Doctor Doolittle.
0: Can't believe I'm so old that the movies of my childhood are now being rebooted.
1: <laughs> the third remake of that, of particular note, Soylent Green in 1973. Don't give it away. Some of you may It's have people. Seen it. Oh no! Oh wait, sorry. <laughs> Also, tying back to an earlier episode of Ours, in 1983, Richard Fleischer directed Amityville 3D.
0: I have not seen that one.
1: Yeah, so that's one we may need to check out. And then the one-two punches in the mid-80s of Conan the Destroyer and Red Sonja, both uh, Conan films. Well, Red Sonja actually has Arnold Schwarzenegger co-starring, but he does not play Conan the Barbarian in it. So yeah, those are just a couple of the the genre picks uh, that the director has done. And I think that it's it's really interesting to see a filmmaker such as him dive into a a true crime as well done as this one is.
0: Yeah, yeah, it's very well done. I do know that more recently... Oh, was it maybe 2016? There has been a BBC show or show or miniseries. I really haven't actually looked into it at all, so I probably shouldn't be talking about it. But it's called Rillington Place, and it is about John Christie. I mean, I think it's telling kind of the same story, the story of Timothy Evans. And it might be good. I'm honestly ready to wash my hands of this case because reading about it makes me feel dirty. (laughs) So... I will say one thing I, I do appreciate about this movie and really about the history surrounding John Christie is the story that's, out of this i mean the story when i first read about john christie you know it was specifically it was the story of timothy evans it's the story of a man who was wrongfully convicted and executed for killing his family and you know has probably saved countless others from being wrongfully executed by inspiring this public outrage that abolished the death penalty just this one person so I can dig that. It's awful that it happened. You know, it's awful that due to the botched investigation, due to the fact that they couldn't see a goddamn human femur (laughs) in the garden fence, this innocent person was killed but I'm glad that his story is overshadowing someone that seemed to be in it for the fame you know what was the first thing he did when the bodies were discovered he called up news of the world so screw you John Christie
1: and well at least in the film the dog did not die even though the dog was digging up uh the shallow grave in the garden yep and in real life I guess dug up the skull (laughs) that's true and as far as we know the dog in real life did not get strangled either that's true but yeah no this is a tough crime it, i know it's grueling having talked to you as you were doing all the the hard research i know it it had an effect and for me as we mentioned earlier i'm kind of uh while it's while supernatural murders and slashers and film i enjoy them this film and its subject matter was was really painful and i'm those at times sort of curled up into a fetal position and yelling at the screen and Which
0: is crazy because I've watched so many horror movies with you and you're just completely unaffected and yeah yeah because you didn't know much about the story going into the movie right you didn't
1: right yeah you Um, know anything yeah no I knew a little bit bit about it but I guess I'm treating these without having knowing everything about the crime just to be surprised by the story and as a horror movie fan that doesn't have haven't seen a lot of true crime films uh, (laughs) I was I was Not surprised by my reaction. But uh, we should you should like do a time lapse of me in the on the couch while we're watching. Yeah, I've got a else.
0: picture of you making that face, eating a little dark chocolate <laughs> uh, peanut butter cup from Trader Joe's, like a little angry squirrel. It's very cute. I'll post it on the Instagram.
1: <laughs> yeah, I just started popping them at the end of the yeah. movie. I just had so much. I'm like, I just need, I need my my sweet chocolate and peanut butter combination. Oh, <laughs> ease the, he's the agony over the, over oh what gosh. actually happened. But, you know, it's a testament to the power of film.
0: Yeah. And, you know, the testament to the power of a film that is based on real events. I don't think you would have had, you know, the same reaction if you didn't know that this was telling a true story.
1: Yeah, no, I think you're right. And I just encourage all of you to check out the film, even if you're not really into classic film. It's a 71 film, but don't be afraid. It's not in black and white. And John
0: Hurt is so cute in it. Oh my goodness hashtag man crush monday because we're posting this on monday right
1: <laughs> yeah and if you want to check out uh you know your favorite uh walt disney of dinosaurs actor who played john hammond in a role that uh for me didn't really it doesn't add any it doesn't scare me away from jurassic park but it's it's definitely a different perspective on on him right
0: yes for sure. Not gonna lie, it kind of scares me away from Jurassic Park. Oh, thank <laughs> you. I'm giving him the side eye from now on.
1: Yeah, do I trust you? Do I yeah. not? I don't know. Yeah. Yeah.
0: So I promise next week we're already thinking about what case it's gonna be, but it's gonna be something a little more lighthearted. You know, we tried to lighten this episode up a little bit with our, our witty banter, but I still feel down. <laughs> so <laughs> let's uh let's wrap this up.
1: We're gonna uh, wrap up the the true crime case of John Christie and all of his awful murders. But then as we wrap that up, let's move into our now plane. So Chelsea, what's your now plane for this? week
0: so um, my coming soon is an atypical one this week once again so, uh, but this time it's it's not a movie. It's not a Tony-winning Broadway musical. It is um, this four-part BuzzFeed news investigation into Russia assassinations in the UK. And Ooh. so, this specifically caught my attention because of a case that, um, if any of you are, you know, into true crime, you've probably heard of. So it's the death of Gary. Williams in 2010. He uh, was, I think, a computer programmer who was doing some work for MI6, and he was found in his apartment naked in a duffel bag that was padlocked on the outside, and his death was ruled an accident. Whoa. So there's a really good episode of one of my favorite podcasts, Insight about this mystery, um, I think back in April. And then just over the past few days, um, it's come up as part of this really amazing investigation. I've only read two of the four parts, but I'm sure by the time this is posted, I'll have read all four because as soon as we finish recording, I'm planning on reading the next two. Um, Part one is called Poison in the System. Part two is From Russia with Blood. Part 3 is the man who knew too much and part 4 is the secrets of the spy in the bag. So, just to give you a little hint of what you can look forward to if you decide to embark on this journey. So, this is an excerpt from the the second part 2. BuzzFeed News obtained 250 boxes of documents containing secret details of Young's perilous business dealings on Berzovsky's behalf, recovered files from his computers, forensically imaged his phones, reviewed hours of surveillance footage and covert recordings, interviewed more than 150 people, secured the police evidence bag that included his bloody shoes and examined vital clues from the scene of his death that the police missed or ignored. So this is just insane. From the people that bring you quizzes like choose your favorite pasta dish and we will tell you what dog you should own comes this like insane investigation into russia assassinating people so it's mind-blowing read it Um, especially if you're one of those people that's like what's so bad about improving relations with russia we should be friends with russia read these articles (laughs) so yeah that's my that's my now playing how about you david
1: (laughs) that's a little bit of light reading no uh i've got a bookmark so i'm looking forward to checking that out my now playing, I have a an album and then a film. So starting with the album, my album is Strange Worlds and Weird Wars by Marnie. And Marnie is uh, otherwise known as Helen Marnie, who was half of Ladytron. And this is her second solo album. So if you like Ladytron, I would definitely highly recommend... Checking out Strange Worlds and Weird Wars. It's available on iTunes, Spotify. It's also on uh, Bandcamp or wherever you like. And then, as far as film, I've recently watched The Creeping Flesh, which is a Peter Cushing uh, hammer horror era classic horror film. And this is a typical Peter Cushing sort of mad scientist uh, movie. And of course, our favorite Christopher Lee makes an appearance in it.
0: Aw, Christopher Lee. I love
1: yeah. you. <laughs> R.I.P. So Creeping Flesh started out as something I just had playing on the background. Was, I was doing some paintings. I was actually watching on a shutter. And then I decided to go back last weekend and sit down and watch the whole movie. So if you like you know, that late 60s, 70s, Hammer-esque Peter Cushing classic horror films, I highly recommend checking that out. So that's now playing. So Chelsea, what's your coming soon selection?
0: So my coming soon for this week, and it's not coming out for a while, but it's kind of in the news now because they just released um, some cast photos. So it's the new American crime story, uh, which is the assassination of Gianni Versace. Um, So I'm really excited because I remember when this happened. (laughs) This was Really huge news story. Um, you know, the first season was O.J. Simpson, which I was a little young for when it was in the news. Whereas, you know, for you, David, old man, um you remember it all very well. Oh, um,
1: no, my memory is not so good these days.
0: <laughs> so yeah, I'm just I'm really excited. the The pictures are awesome. Definitely check them out if you haven't come across them already. And it just it makes me really excited because. I thought they did a great job with um, the O.J. Simpson season. So, you know, I have high hopes for for their take on um, Versace's murder. Uh, so what's your coming soon, David?
1: My coming soon is a classic Dario Argento film called Phenomena, starring a pre-labyrinth Jennifer Connelly. And Phenomena is about an American, played by Jennifer Connelly, at a Swiss finishing school who calls upon insects to help a paralyzed scientist played by Donald Pleasance, to fight a monster. Donald
0: Pleasance? Yes, Dr. Loomis
1: himself, yes. Imagine that, playing a scientist or a doctor.
0: Wait, have you not, you've not seen Phenomenon? Yes, you, yes, you have I've seen, seen it. it you're excited to show it to me.
1: <laughs> I'm excited to also not only show it to you, but to watch the remastered Synops Films edition, which mm-hmm. we have on Blu-ray. We've had it for a couple months, but we have a still book and we have not quite, we have not watched it yet. So I'm looking forward to screening that is
0: that based on a true crime a true bug master
1: no (laughs) so that we
0: probably won't have time to watch it
1: (laughs) yeah that's true we may not anyway so that's my pick for coming soon next time we have another episode i may have to repeat it in case we didn't have a chance to watch it however that's on the top of the list in terms of movies that i would like to watch
0: all right so there's one shout out i want to do real quick a very uh nice person on Instagram named uh, Haley who said that uh, she really enjoyed our last episode and that we're finding our groove. So, um, thank you. Thank you, Haley. I hope that your movie buff and horror expert husband got a chance to, uh, check out Lake Bodom. One more quick shout out. We got our first review on iTunes actually in the U S. So now I get to see it every time I obsessively search for our own podcast. <laughs> so, uh, thank you jane q public who gave us a five-star review and says i love that they're combining two interests of mine true crime and film keep up the good work and we're gonna try to do just that so
1: Yep. We definitely are. So thank you for the iTunes reviews. Please keep them coming. It helps raise our visibility on iTunes. We really need you guys to rate us and review us. We appreciate you taking a couple minutes out of your day to do that for us. We take your feedback to heart. We want to continue to make the show better. Also, please follow us on social media. Instagram is the place to be at based on a true crime. You can also follow us on Twitter at true crime based and Facebook based on a true crime podcast so thank you for checking out this episode on the John Christie murders
0: and 10 Rillington Place.
1: yes Uh, we've had a really grueling time talking about the crimes you know the film's quite good so highly recommend you check out the movie as well and
0: if you do let us know what you think we would love to hear from you so my mom suggested that we come up with some kind of signature sign off And since giving our kitty cats a treat is already taken, (laughs) this one is David's idea.
1: Death is but a door.
0: Time is but a window.
1: We'll be back.